0: John Copenhagen and
1: Al Warren. Heard on KCNN, 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside,
0: and one
1: hundred
0: five oh AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, and it's Wicked Wednesday because it's Michael Hawley. Hello, Al. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Jack the Ripper has the same middle name as Bob the
1: Hammer. Did you? Say that? that was shocking, Al. When you sent that to me, the, I think there's a connection there. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, you know, yeah. See, there you go.
0: See, you find out something new every day. So, uh, New Year's, Christmas, what, what happened? Do you?
1: Uh, oh, burned down um, the house or what? I, I survived it. You know, having six kids and two, two dogs and a cat and Holy moly. So, but I survived
0: it. Yeah. So. And don't, don't forget that wife. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, for sure.
0: Kill him out of 10 pages. It. Remember, I'm afraid of her. So, Yes, we're, we're all I mean, half the country's afraid of her. <laughs> <laughs> don't get near that one. Boy, uh, a rough one. Well, speaking of rough, no, here we go. Uh, okay, so we've got an author with us today. Well, he's done all sorts of things, so we've got lots to talk about here. Uh, of course, the book, The Mindset Chronicles, is book one, The Deletion. Sounds like your 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 life. But
2: anyway, Steve Truett, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Alan. I really appreciate it. Nice to see you, Michael. Nice to speak with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure
0: to have you. You know, you've got quite the history. Wow. How did you get into all this? I see you're a big Star Trek fan and you uh, NASA, NASA history buff yeah. and all of this. And you've you got the flown-in space memorabilia. So you actually get things that have really been in space and
2: collect them. I do, yeah. I started that. When I started making some money um, in my 30s and eBay was coming into you know prominence, and I just started looking around for, for NASA memorabilia. Anyway, I've been a NASA fan since I was three years old. I watched Apollo 11 take off with my mother sitting there with me, and she told me they were going to the moon, and that was it for me. I, I got into Star Trek, and I got into NASA, and I supported the National Space Society, which I'm still a member of, and the Planetary Society. Huge fan of Carl Sagan. But flown-in-space memorabilia is really hard to come by um, because, you know, they chop up things into tiny little bits and they send it out. But I have flags that have been flown in space and pencils from Apollo 15, and I find it very valuable. I don't know if anybody else does, but there's a market for it out there, and I love collecting it.
1: Well, Steve, I was a a Navy pilot, and so one of the reasons why I became a pilot is because I was going to go into the astronaut program. That was a plan. Uh, Ultimately... Things change, and uh, I got married with a wife that's uh, tougher than I am. But no, and but she I, flew I, I <laughs> That's right. But I, just like you, I just have a passion for that and SpaceX lately. But yes, it's pretty awesome for, for sure. SpaceX. What planes did you fly? I flew both fixed wing and helicopters. So fixed wing, I was I was in the jet program for a while, so it was just trainers. But then uh, helicopters, I flew uh, what they call the H two C Sprite. So to hover is divine.
2: Yeah, it's such a different discipline between helicopter and plane. I've I've always found it fascinating.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. To, uh, I, like I, uh, my uh, my buddies that were the jet pilots, I'd always say, "Well, I can fly yours, but you can't fly mine. So who's a better pilot?" <laughs> so then they'd say, "Well, we can shoot you right out of the sky." Yeah, that's true.
2: <laughs> you got me there. Don't shoot.
0: <laughs> well, that's interesting. But you know, and and you've talked and you've met. It's not five of the
2: moonwalkers, it said. So you've actually met some of the astronauts. I have. I, yeah. the, the first three I met, uh, the first two I met were Apollo 12, which is Alan Bean and Pete Conrad. And I was just a reporter for an entertainment uh, radio source called Metro Source. I don't know, Alan, if you know Metro Traffic. They're here in L.A. But when they expanded into Metro Source, which is a national radio source, I became their top entertainment reporter. But every so often I went to openings of things, and there they were, Alan Bean and, and Pete Conrad, um, and Dick Gordon, who was the command module pilot for Apollo 12. And I just sat with them for probably 15 minutes. I didn't even really re- interview them. I just talked to them, and they were fascinating. And then I was lucky enough to meet um, both Apollo 11. I did meet Neil Armstrong very briefly. I shook his hand. Uh, but I spent a lot of time meeting Buzz Aldrin. I probably spent at least three or four Uh, interactions with him. I have a picture with him. Very proud of. Uh, And then I met the last moonwalker, who was Gene Cernan, the last man to stand on the moon, Apollo 17, 1972. So, they're all fascinating. They just have endless stories. And they're great stories. Bet you can't tell them that they're down to earth because they're moon people. (laughs) I I really tried
1: not to go there.
0: (laughs) Shake the hand and you won't let go. That's right. (laughs) Well, I bet. what do you... Okay, so... I have to get this in before we get into the book because okay. NASA and space and, and, and Star Trek, so all of this, you see, because when I was younger too, Star Trek with William Shatner right through to the modern day, it, it was always something really exciting and, you know, and Kit, you know, the driving car that could yeah. talk and, and all that stuff. But that was, that was, when I was young, I looked forward to electric cars. I looked forward to all of this advancement and technology. Now today we seem to have a real backlash toward it. Like people, there's a you know 300,000 people belong to the Flat Earth Society. There's people that challenged Buzz Aldrin, said you've never been to the moon, it's all yeah. fake. How how, did, how does that how does that resonate with you?
2: Well, it's infuriating, and I don't have as much patience as someone like Carl Sagan who could uh, who could um, respond to these silly conspiracy theories in a really methodical and smart way. I just I will just say to someone, "You're an idiot." But I, you know, I, I I worked for Tesla for two years in their training oh. program, and the guy that worked for me was a flat earther—the first one I had ever met. And and by the time we got through a conversation of all the quote-unquote proof that he had that he found on the internet, I just I just said to him, I, "I said the smartest thing you've ever said is that you don't want children, because thank God you're not breeding." <laughs>
0: Yeah, I know but it's
2: tough. How I, how I feel about it is is, is absurd there's, because there's so much definable proof. Number one, and this is, this is it, if peop, if we really didn't go to the moon, the first people to say that would have been the Russians. They were right, monitoring right. our telemetry. We were in a race. They didn't say a word. They knew they lost. Um, and then with the flat earthers, you know, the, the funniest thing about that, and I'll try to be brief on this, is number one, when they have conventions, they'll say people come from all over the globe. Or around the world. for <laughs> so the flat earth is designed. And then the second thing is there was a, a couple of guys. There was a documentary on Netflix about this, wanted to prove that the earth was flat. So they set up an experiment, their rules that would shine a laser two miles out and shine it through two different holes. And if the laser got through both holes, you know, because every two miles, I think is a 7% curvature, let's say. Okay. Then, then the laser wouldn't have hit the final plate. Well, they set up the experiment. They shine the laser. The guy's on the walkie talkies He's like, do you see it? And the guy's like, no. He's like, well, raise your hand up about another five feet. So he raises his hand up, and then the laser hits the plate, proving that there's a curvature in the Earth. And they <laughs> said to themselves, well, wait a second. That can't be right. So I think the difference, Alan, I don't want to get too deep into this, but I think what's happened to us is that we've become so entrenched in what we need to believe that we've forgotten to explore and discover things and so therefore it's like well in the in the face of overwhelming evidence we can't accept that we could learn something and maybe be wrong and so we have to double down on it by we i just mean probably 30 or 40% of the population that just doesn't have the capacity to grow
0: yeah well it just it's just sad it just seemed like there was so much more excitement behind space travel and all this it just seemed like it was you know, everyone yeah. was enthralled with it. And now sure. there's just like people like, no, it's not real. It's fake. we you know, all this stuff that, um, that's all. It just sort of, um, I just wonder, it must, it must be hard if you're a real, real fan and really into it and you got wackadoodles out there doing stuff. It know? is hard, but yeah. yeah. So yeah. now how did you get, uh, from that into deciding to write a book? Like what led you to write Mindset?
2: Well, two things. Uh, one, I'd had the story in my head for almost 20 years. It was a story that I had concocted in the 90s um, about an emerging technology where groupthink was challenged. Uh, I, I, I've i always been fascinated by how one person can affect a mass of people and how a mass of people can influence one person. That was my college thesis at University of Maryland when I wrote my final um, paper in my communications courses. Um, and I just had this idea, and I sat around and sat around, and I thought about it and I thought about it. And then COVID hit in 2020, and uh, I was working for a company that um, put a lot of us on furlough to save money, and I had eight weeks with nothing to do. And I wrote the Mindset Chronicles, book one, The Deletion, in that time. And then I realized I had something, and I reached out to a hybrid publishing company. I did a lot of research about trying to get an agent or maybe – getting signed with a, a you know, quote-unquote, a, a legitimate publishing company, and just found out that, you know, hybrid publishing is just as effective. Um, the, the Martian was a was a self-published book, if you knew that. Um, so I met with Paper Raven Books, who liked the idea, and we got together, and we developed the book together. I sent in my first draft. They hired editors and got people going and marketing, and before I knew it, I had a best-selling book on my hands. How do you... Um
0: get into the mindset of your main characters? That's a good question.
2: You know, I think because I thought about the book for 20 years, I I had a fully formed story in my head. It had to come out. I was grateful for that furlough, (laughs) that eight weeks furlough, because it would still be there, you know, pushing against the side of my brain. I I think the story, and and I've heard you ask this in other interviews too, and, you know, what's your writing process, and I may get ahead of your question here, but I feel like this book wrote me. When I sat down, it came out of me, and I felt like this, the characters were telling me what to say. I think it was so fully formed in my head. So in this case, that's how I was able to use their voices, was they were talking through me.
0: So you're hearing voices and you're driving. That's me. true.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't been committed. Oh, really? that's pretty good. You know? yeah. As far as we know. As far as we yeah. know, yeah.
0: You're not waking up with shovel by the bed or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet. Well, not yet. At least not that you're going to admit. Well, then that's that's interesting. So then, in a way, the characters direct um, the storyline in a sense. Even though the story's been in your head twenty years, you've got you've got a lot of direction from your characters and and that. Did you, did you set out to um, have a point or a subtext to the story?
2: Yeah. That's a fantastic question. When I first had the idea, I wanted to write just one book and get it out of me. And by the time I was 70,000 words into it, I realized this is probably going to be a trilogy. And I'd also done research on sci-fi books, and a lot of people love trilogies now. Uh, so I then was able to, at that 70,000 word mark, concoct what my whole story was going to be which really is a statement, it's kind of what we were talking about before with the cognitive dissonance of people who just don't want to believe that we landed on the moon or whatever that is, Uh, that essentially mankind is going to be who they're going to be no matter who tries to intervene to make them better. So mindset is all about a mind-connected society after a post-AI world. AI decides at some point in the future it's actually – contributing to the downfall of mankind and it ends its own life it kills itself in its ultimate wisdom to help mankind this is the this is the opposite of what a lot of people think ai is going to be like it's going to destroy us like terminator my precept was if ai is smarter than us then it's got to know that we need help and it tried to help but our basic nature was we we can't even help ourselves there's no way you can help us so it gives up and in this period called the deletion which is the first book Mankind is cut off from each other. There is no communication. Satellites are are destroyed, gone inert, cell phones, all of that. And mankind has to reconnect. And at the same time, this genius inventor from Sweden named Peter Erickson develops this integrated senses device, which originally was designed to bring sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, but he realized he could connect the units. And by connecting the units to other people, it created this entire industry of mind-connected, integrated senses, where everybody was scrambling to have them put in their brain. And his thought was, well, if I can connect everybody, then the collective wisdom from these folks would lead mankind toward making good decisions. And this is based on a theory that was developed in the early 1900s called the Wisdom of Crowds, where a man named Sir Francis Galton uh, did an experiment at a country fair where he had people guess the weight of an ox. This is a true story. So where I got the idea and of the 700 people or so that guessed no one got the weight correct but he went home and calculated it and the average of all the guesses was exact he got the average was right Wow then he repeated the experiment again and again and it always came out the same people may be wrong individually but in the aggregate the average is usually tends to be correct that's called crowd wisdom and that's what I based mindsets intention on was to collectively have the human race propel itself into a newer form of thinking and evolution through collective wisdom. Well, that's not what happens in the book. It goes horribly wrong and then therefore there's the series.
0: When there's humans, it always goes horribly wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah. well,
1: hey, I have a question, Steve. Yeah, Michael. Because you're such in Star Trek, and I think you were even on an episode of Star Trek. I was. Um, to me, it sounds like you should have been a Borg with the collective.
2: (laughs) I love that you say that because I I can give a little bit of the book away because it's been out for a little while now, but there is something that happens with alien technology at some point. And I was thinking about making this a Borg origin story. Really? And so I went to a friend of mine who's a, who's a huge um, YA writer. She's one of the biggest and she's out there she's on, a platform called Wattpad. I don't know if you guys heard of that, but it's a big platform for new writers. She's got 30 40,000 followers. And I went to her and I said, this is what I want to do. And she said, if you write a Star Trek story, you'll limit it to Star Trek fans. Write a huge story and bring in the Star Trek fans along with everybody else. So I reluctantly, but eventually, did not make oh. a Borg origin story. And I think that probably was the right thing to do. I would have liked it. Thanks. <laughs> I would have liked it too, probably. Yeah.
0: So this is interesting. So AI basically gives up on humans and said,
2: get me away from these. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't destroy humans. It destroys itself because it yeah. says, look, I can't help you. And <laughs> I'm only harming
0: you. Wow. Wow. So that, how, how does that affect the human race in a sense of um, with their own, um, how do you say, um, you know, um, pride? Feeling feelings towards something like that.
2: I think there was such a panic in those early moments of the deletion in the book that people didn't even know what was going on. Uh, the first three chapters are the first hours of the deletion where all around the world communications are cut off. People are on trains and their phones die. Uh, platforms in subway stations, the televisions go out. At the White House, communication is shut down. Um, in at NORAD, which is the Um, North American defense grid three miles below Cheyenne Mountain in uh, Colorado Springs goes dark. The entire world goes dark for such a, a long time that people don't even know that it was AI in the first place. So once they kind of emerge and start to realize what's happening, by that time, by the time human race starts to realize, here's what happened and here's what we can do, this mindset device comes along, and that's why humans are so hungry for it. They're not even thinking about what happened with AI. Now they're like, oh, we can have this.
0: So now how much research did you do for something like
2: this? I I, I did a lot, but I can't qualify it because I didn't do any research ahead of writing. I research as I go. I learned this from my mom Uh, in the 80s. I used to watch her read a book. She'd sit on the couch on a Saturday, read a book with a dictionary next to her. And if she got to a word she didn't know, she'd look it up in the dictionary and then she'd keep reading. And I I think that was my inspiration for writing. So I'd start to write, and i go, well, I need to understand how this works or what this is, and then I'd go into Google and I'd search it, and then I'd keep writing. Or, you know, what would, what language do they speak here? Or what device would this be? Or what kind of gun would this guy use? And so I, I research as I write.
0: Well, did you feel a little bit of pressure when you're writing about something like AI, something that's around in our world today, something that's kind of talked about a lot? Did you feel like a certain... Um... I don't know, you had to write it a certain way?
2: Not really. I think because I knew it was going to, I mean, AI dies in the first chapter. So ah. the way I set it up, I mean, the whole book takes place after the death of AI. And, and and frankly, to be honest, I felt emboldened because I saw that AI was becoming a big thing. And I think one of my, you can call it a flaw, or one of my picadillos is that I, like to write what other people aren't writing. And so if everybody's writing about AI, I want to think, well, what's after that? What, you know, what comes after AI? So that's why I want to do it. So I was was excited about writing it.
0: So now you need to say this is going to be a trilogy. So you've kind of got in mind what you want to do with the next two books. Do you kind of have the outline sort of set up in your brain and then you kind of tackle it? or, Or are you just going to go this at will as you do it?
2: Well, the second book is completed and I took the bits and pieces that I left out of the first book and there was about 15,000 words and I, I took it into the second book and I had an outline for the second book and I knew how I wanted it to end. And so that, you know, the first book took me a year and a half to really finish because I, I did the eight weeks, but then I polished it and did all the stuff. Second book took me about three months to write. And it just, it flowed out of me. I didn't think I'd have it, and I did. Now, the third book is neither written nor is there an outline, but I know exactly what I want to do. And so I think what I'll do, I'm still in the process of promoting book one, and then I'll be doing promotions for book two starting in May of 2024. So I think in the next month or two, I'll, I'll write an outline and try to get started on book three and just try to write it out.
0: So how do you get into the mindset of the evil or the bad characters, or the ones causing trouble in the
2: story? I just, I love these questions. Uh, I think at some point I have thought the thoughts of these people, committed the acts of these people, or From what? you your evil, Steve. Yeah. yeah the Steve, evil, are you evil? Yeah, there's two sides of <laughs> Steve here. Um, I think I was able to understand if I... Here's the thing I see about evil people, and, and I think the best people who play them in the movies are the ones who come off as, I'm not doing anything wrong. I believe exactly what I'm doing. I'm righteous. The truly evil people that I'm fascinated by, not that I want to be evil, but they don't think for a second that they're evil. And so they have an agenda that's just as important to them as the one that's important to you know, our protagonists. And so I write from the aspect of, well, what is this guy? What's his, what's his righteous statement? Why does he think that our protagonist is a fool? So for instance, the the main antagonist in my book, in the book one, Deletion is a military general by the name of Thaddeus T. Gunn Calloway. And he's from the South and he's just a tough guy, tobacco chewing. You know, military man, um, you know, he's a lifer, and he just looks at all the scientists and all the people around him as idiots. He has no idea why they can't assess the threat that's in front of them because his whole identity was built around assessing threat. That's what he was trained to do in the military. They knocked him down to nothing and built him back up as a warrior, as a soldier. And so his whole raison d'etre is to assess threat, and to, you know, snuff it out. And when people are like, Oh no, it's okay, he's like you're a moron. So it I guess it has to do with perspective and not just that he's wrong, but he thinks he's right, and that's how I write him.
0: So you actually dress up and go out and carry out all these bad things to get into the headset.
2: So. Yes, but not for <laughs> writing. That's just my regular quiet time. <laughs> that's your regular Yeah. That's, that's when he's just... got the shovel and Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I bring the shovel, the rope, the bleach. Please <laughs> He's got it all down. I got it all. Down. Holy cow! Yeah. He's he's "You know, this is a kind of I didn't go. I didn't go as Dexter for Halloween by accident. No, <laughs> it was just
0: natural. Just so, so, how do you um, get into the uh, action part of it, and how do you how do you assess what kind of violence you're going to be putting on a page?
2: I I'm, I just have to again say it, this is the best question. Um, there's not a lot of violence in my book. A lot of the action takes place, as we talked about before, almost in the character's mind. I, I read something early on in my um, television career. I used to be on television as a, a host and even a news reporter. But I, I, I read somewhere that, that drama is decision. And and I that resonated with me. And I, I wanted to write my characters in a way that they're constantly struggling, not only with someone outside of them, but with their own decision-making. Do they trust it? That's why mindset is such an interesting book to write because you're not just thinking your own thoughts anymore. You've got the whole collective influencing you, and so the real action does take place mostly in the minds of people. There is, I will tell you, a, um, a launch of a space vehicle near the end of the book, and that was my favorite chapter to write because I, I read um, Tom Jones's book, Riding Rockets, and and Mike Massimino's book too, both both uh, spacewalkers, and I. I read over and over their experiences of the launch on the space shuttle, which apparently was just the greatest thing you could ever do uh, in in a, in a capsule is launch on the space shuttle. And I tried to recreate that in my book. I I loved writing that. And it was, you know, half a chapter of just, just the launch, just the eight minute launch into orbit. And I loved writing it. It was a lot of fun. Do,
0: do you actually um, live through your characters then as you're writing this?
2: I do. The other thing I do, and I, in the second book, I mentioned this in my author acknowledgement. There's not a minute that I'm writing that I don't have some inspirational music going. And for this series, and this is the first set of novels I've ever written, all I had on was sci-fi artists who had scored sci-fi movies, Hans Zimmer and Jeff Russo and Michael Cucino, MDX, actually. Uh, I mean, some really great artists. And so I just always had this music going that inspired me to write as the character it really did get me into that feeling
1: on your website you do have you were into music when you were younger
2: i love your research michael thank you i did you know when i was in college i got my heart broken by a girl and i wrote an entire you know while my friends were making mixtapes I wrote a whole album and produced it and sang it, and it was terrible, but I decided to put it on my website anyway just to show people where I came from.
0: (laughs) But living through this, this whole time that you're writing the book and living through the experience and being into your characters as they experience the good things, the bad things, all that, at the end of it, after it being 20 years in the brain and however long it takes you to write it, and then you get it published and it's out there now, how do you think that process has changed you?
2: It, well, it's given me a confidence I never thought I could have. I think, and I think you both understand this very well, it, it was hard enough just for me to admit that I was an artist in the first place, that I could actually be considered as an artist, someone who creates something. I grew up being told, don't do that, don't, don't like films, don't like TV, you know, work in an office, uh, and I had to move to California. I grew up in New York. I had to move to California just to get away from those voices um, and seek out my own path. But it took me a long, long time just to accept that I could actually not only be that person, but maybe even be successful at it. So how it's changed me has not been so much as how I see the world, but how I see myself in the world and giving myself the permission to dive in as an artist and even say it out loud. It took me a long time just to be able to, even to say it. It's hard for some people to do that. Other people very easy. I've got lots of friends that are actors. Like yeah, I'm an actor. I, I never would have said that. I think unless I was a successful actor, you know. So that that was that was what changed the most for me was now I can identify. I mean, I identify. <laughs> my pronouns are writer, author. You know, I identify as an as an <laughs> a novelist. I am a novelist. That's who I am. And in fact, m- my wife and I have worked together to create, you know, our third act. I, I'm in my third act of life. I had a TV career, then I had a corporate career, and now I'm just going to write books the rest of my life, and that's what I've decided to do.
1: You're kind of like Mike, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mike, Mike was a dancer, and then. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That was my first life. Was it? a like, pilot, Navy, military guy. Yeah. So, yeah, they don't mix, though. I don't know what happened now. Yeah. Well, on the town,
2: yeah. they do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that's right. And well, then hook, <laughs> it I, depends where you're at, right? I mean, but, you know, the throw did work. <laughs> yes, right. Steve, the, that, to me it re- reminds me that your fourth career should be writing a screenplay on these things and maybe possibly make it into a movie.
2: Well, that's on the table. I, I have, because of my TV background and the friends that I've made and my entertainment background, I have a lot of contacts with people. My wife actually works in the entertainment industry. She's a Vice President of Finance for a major company. Um, we're absolutely going to attempt that. I think what I want to do, Michael, is, is finish the series. Um, but I've already sent the first book to several people in the business who who might be interested in it. I, I w- and, and I would have done it whether people liked it or not. But I'm getting really good feedback, so I feel emboldened to keep doing it. I think it could be on television, on a Netflix show or something. It's, I think it's. I write very visually, like a screenplay. Right, and auditorially, it sounds like it. I did do my own audiobook, yeah. Oh, I oh, see
0: Michael there. He could be one of your space guys.
1: <laughs> there you go. I'll be your so. space guy, too. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, it, 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 and you were saying this in, in good reviews and stuff, but it's a pretty judgment mental world out there now you know we're all on display and everyone's got to say something about everything right it's kind of turned into that it doesn't matter what it is um, do you do you ever sort of look at reviews or follow all that stuff or are you trying to stay out of that
2: like how do you how do you handle the noise let's say well i'm lucky enough that i i am quite obscure i have i think 33 so far reviews on amazon for my first book this is i remember i'm just I'm just getting started with my novelist career and I only have one negative review and I enjoyed reading it, Alan, which is interesting because I think maybe 20, 30 years ago, 15 years ago, I might have been hurt by it, but just the review itself was so much fun to read because it was, it was someone who was just so myopic and, and just couldn't, couldn't, she gave up after 30 pages because one of my characters was American Indian. So there you uh-huh. go. Uh, I'm like okay, <laughs> great. Thank you for that, and thank you for letting everyone know why you hated it. Um, <laughs> I guess that comes with age. I know you guys are a lot younger than me, but oh, no, uh, I, I just I, I think growing up allows me to be like, look, uh, this is this. I'll tell you this to answer your question. This is the only thing I've ever done in my life. Where somebody else didn't have to give me the go-ahead, where someone else didn't have to give me the green light or the permission, I did it. Every letter and note I typed was mine. Every word, every thought was mine. I own it a thousand percent, and so I think that's why I'm able to put it out there confidently and just see what happens. I, I, I don't mind if I get negative stuff because I because it's a hundred. I didn't do it to, for anyone else but me, you know yeah
0: but you know but it's in a way you put yourself out there because you're being vulnerable in a sense because it is yeah. your words it's every word is you so you kind of you're going to mix your feelings you're going to mix your thoughts it's going to be some things that are true to you and so you know someone can say there and say oh this is really dumb man this and you're kind of like well it wasn't for me it meant a lot like i that's sort of my what I was sort of getting at for, for, for me personally, I stay away from it. Uh, I don't look anymore completely or look at the overall, you know, you see like overall it's a thousand reviews and you got four out of five stars. I'm thrilled, you know? Um, Yeah.
2: And I, I think you're, you know, you, you're prolific and you've had a lot of you've done a lot of work. Like I said, I'm just getting started. It may change for me. I'm hoping it doesn't. I think if I were to put into the book, a story about my mom who died last year or about my children who I, you know, love dearly and someone were to mock that, I'd be pissed. Yeah. But um, it's just, I think it goes back to the original question of what do you think of these conspiracy theorists and flat earthers? I roll my eyes and I just think, okay, you you know, I guess you have to be part of society. I wish you could get your priorities straight. And I just try not to focus on it if I can.
1: Well, Steve, uh, when Al was actually on Tucker Carlson, and, and, of course, that was not a positive thing, <laughs> but it really did help Al. <laughs> no,
0: no, no. But I think that was the turning point for me. That's when I realized that I just, I'm just i just going to do what I do, focus on my work and not worry about what someone like yeah.
2: Tucker says or somebody else. Right? That's
0: craziness.
2: You know? I, it's I, just I, a, I don't want fans. I, plus, I, the people I write for don't watch Tucker Carlson. Or the people who would like my stuff, they're not—they're not intellectually curious. I think.
0: Yeah, that's kind of the best, you know. But um, so, what gave you the courage? What was it that happened? Do you think was there a certain event that gave you that courage to actually go? Okay, this twenty-year mind idea that I've had—I'm going to publish it. I'm going to work it. I'm going to write it. Put it out there. Was there something that threw you into that?
2: Yeah. Well, as I mentioned before, the pandemic and and my. Eight-week furlough gave me the time, but I'm going to give all my credit to my wife because this is what got me over the edge of being able to say I'm a, I'm an author, I'm an artist, and I can do this. I went to her and I said, I want to start. You know, I'm off work for eight weeks. I'm not bringing in any income, and I want to write this novel. And my wife is an extremely practical woman, and she's a yes or a no. She's a one and a zero. She's she's a, she's an accountant. She, things make sense to her if they add up correctly. And she looked at me and said, "You do it. I know who you are. I know you're an artist. Write this book." And that was the final wind in my sail that I needed to actually sit down and write the book. And I I, and I dedicate this first book to her. Um, Nice. Honestly, guys, I just don't think I would have done it if she had said, "Don't be ridiculous. Go find. Go work for Starbucks for eight weeks while you're off." You know, she could have said anything. (laughs) Yeah. And she said, Write this book and so I, I credit
0: her. Michael's wife would have had him out washing dishes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I did the dishes at
2: night. But I had these right. right. No in a yeah.
1: restaurant. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, we ate a lot of ramen in those eight weeks, I can tell you. Oh,
1: (laughs) Oh, okay.
0: (laughs) No, it's good. I mean, it's it's always something that pushes. I mean, if you've got the time, that's one thing that I I always think that's, you know, something special. Uh, What other influences do you think that you've taken in? Did you take in from some of your characters from people you know, people you've met, uh, maybe worked with?
2: Yeah, I'd have to think about that. I have a lot of characters in my book. Uh, one guy is a, yes, the answer is yes. One guy is a, um, uh, Mormon captain in the army. He's from Salt Lake City, but he, he works at NORAD. And I based him on my college roommate who always said to me, I'm Mormon baptized, but I don't practice. And that's kind of this character's. Uh, thing. I named a lot of people after friends that I know because I just needed names. I'm like, okay, what do I do? Um, A lot of people reflect parts of myself, I think, uh, in that way. Did you kill anybody off that you knew? (laughs) Yeah. Not, not in person. No,
0: no. I, I, I was hoping not. Maybe oh. we're getting a confession here. But no, I'm thinking not today, fellas.
2: Not we're gonna today. go to your true crime stuff. And we'll do that. <laughs> That's,
0: right. That's right. Well, you never know. You might be surprised. You know. I mean, I, we had who? Um, we had a really big New York Times author on, and he uh, he always killed off people that that would would cut him off, or if he was in a grocery store, and. Um, and someone was rude. He would take that person, develop a
2: character, and, and murder them. Wow! You know, so literally, you're speaking. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And uh, and it works. He's uh, you know, big author and doing well. And I was just like, wow, that's crazy. I I'm like the cut that. of his jib.
2: Yeah. I, I I did cut. I did kill a couple of people that I liked, uh, which added oh, to boy. the emotion of the book.
0: Yeah, you can't. You don't tell them
2: that either, right?
0: I won't, I won't tell you who I liked
2: and who I didn't like. Yeah, I mean, or you can
0: get, You can tell us. We won't tell anybody. Character number eight. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I mean, give us the name and phone number, and we'll
0: get them on the line and, you know, bring this up. And
2: get some there was stuff. one guy I named uh, in the book, Markel Baldwin, and I just did it because I love that name, and it's a guy I worked with at Tesla, and I wrote him a text. I said, do you mind if I name this character after you, like, your actual name, because I like that name? And he's like, yeah, go for it. Um, yeah, so, but nothing, I don't think I created any character based on any person. I think what I wanted, it was the story, the the story created the characters which created their actions. That's, I think that's the way I did it. The other thing I wanted to come back to was the character itself and and how I wrote for characters. I didn't realize that I tell my story through characters until I read a review on Amazon because I do read the reviews. I have 33. I read them all, Alan. Um, <laughs> well we'll fix that we'll get you some more <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. that's right and uh, and someone said this is a character driven plot and i didn't realize that until i really thought about it and it really is true that's that's where i start from this character
0: but that's a good thing i, I think that I love it. Um, yeah. if if yeah, you think yeah. about it
2: think about some of the
0: books that have lasted for you know a long time 100 years like you look at the it's always a character like you know um, like sherlock holmes you know, people people today still go out looking to find out where he lived. He's not a real person, but <laughs> yeah. do you know what I mean? But it's if your character is is the the driver, the one that everyone loves, there can be it'll last forever. And it yeah, He remakes and people because it's the character that they remember and hold on to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah. So I think that's the the key personally. It, it's got to be character. Yeah. I remember I got yelled at by my editor because because I'm I'm mostly nonfiction. I was kind of e- explaining what it was like to be in the Whitechapel district, and they said you got to do that through character, let the mm. characters show that. So that's exactly what you're talking about, and it certainly did help.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, 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 like I said, I don't, I never thought that I had enough story to tell because my points are, they're concise. There's not much to, you know, expand on, and so I think I did have to have the characters. Live around my points and and build around them and you know. yeah
0: yeah yeah other thing just, you, you
2: asked you asked too about influences the other thing that really drove my writing process was uh, I discovered Tom Clancy in college and, and his first book that I read was Red Storm Rising which remains one of my favorite books uh, and I I put a lot of his pacing. And some of his style into my writing style.
0: Tom Clancy. Now he's a writer, right? No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, just a little bit.
2: Yeah. So what's what's coming up
0: next for Steve? What are you what are you working on now? You said you got book two in there. So what what's the details on book
1: two now?
2: So book two comes out in May of twenty twenty four. It's called the spill. So the spill is um, what. Uh, happens when this mind-connected society, driven by crowd wisdom, encounters this world-changing event that the collective can't seem to handle. There's not enough uh, collective wisdom and brain power to manage the overload of information flowing back and forth between all the people that are connected, which causes this huge kind of a a crash, if you will. But it's human brains, not... um, not, uh, isolinear chips that are crashing. And so that's called The Spill. So this second book is what happens after this big thing happens, which is the, um, uh, cliffhanger of the first, there's a cliffhanger of the first book, the event happens. And then the second book is about the aftermath of that. So, um, and that leads us into the third book, which I haven't titled yet. I have a couple of work. Cleanup. Huh? <laughs> Cleanup. Yeah. Cleanup. <laughs> it's called Return of the Jedi. Um, good name thank you I like it, it's original it is um, originally a Revenge of the Jedi and I changed it, I know it's great Um, Wrath of Khan yeah, so, so the spill it gets deep, it gets dark we're really getting into the minds of people and what goes wrong there's a central character who's kind of the fly in the ointment that I set up a little bit in book one and he really becomes important in book two so that's May 24th. Uh, the, I'm doing a graphic novel, which bridges the first and second book. And I'm still mm. footing, putting the finishing touches on that. And I'll have that up on my website, which is stevetruitt.com, probably in the next month or so. Mm. And I'm giving away free, free stuff. If you go to my website and sign up for my newsletter, you can get some free things. <laughs> There's my promotion. Woo-hoo. Yay!
0: Balloons and everything. So, so that was your website. Are you, do you do social media, too? Do you like to
2: interact with readers that way? I do. I'm on Instagram, which is just Steve Truitt, no uh, spaces, two T's at the end of Truitt. Uh, I am on Facebook. I don't really do TikTok, and I'm not on X.
0: Excrement. No, no, a lot of people aren't. (laughs) staying away from that. I say X to
2: X. X to
0: X, yeah. uh, It's a mess out there, you know. Yeah. Well, anyway, this has been a pleasure. We're glad you were able to come on the show and talk a little bit about who you are and your book and everything. So... Um, The book, The Mindset Chronicles, book one, The
2: Delicious. Mr. Steve Truitt, thank you for being here. Alan, thank you so much. And Michael, it's great to get to know you too. Yes.
1: Nice speaking with you, Steve. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of something wave media. I'll be back.